Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship. To find info on our speaker and series, please check the podcast description. Thanks for listening, and enjoy! Good morning. It's good to be here with you again. I don't believe in coincidences, so God knew that I needed to speak this morning with Rod stuck in Alberta right now. I'd like to begin uh, the, the message this morning with a text that we'll be coming back to at the end. And if this works, I'll show you it on the screen. There it is. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, 14 to 16. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. The purpose of this series of messages is, which is entitled, as you see on the screen, Sharing the Gospel. The purpose of this series of messages is to encourage us, enable us, and empower us corporately and individually to shine our light brightly in the world. We want others to see the beauty and the power of the light of Christ shining through our lives. And one of the things that we need to figure out, and I want to speak about this this morning, is how to cross over barriers that separate us from other people. Now, these barriers come in many different forms. Barriers of, that are racial, social, regional, relational, attitude barriers, prejudice barriers, and of course, religious barriers. Now, that sounds like a pretty tall order. I'm sure you would agree. Take, for example, Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Do you remember him? If you were here this summer, you will remember that this was the sermon series back in August. We learned so much about how not to shine our light from Jonah's life and how seemingly insurmountable barriers are really not insurmountable. Jonah earned this title because he hated his enemies. He hated his enemies so severely that he wanted to see them destroyed. But, contrary to his inclination, God called him to go to the capital city of his enemy and preach the message of repentance so that God could save them from judgment. So what does he do? Well, as an all-in patriot, he books a passage on a ship going the opposite direction, fleeing from God's calling In short, he refuses the assignment. The result, a storm at sea and time spent in the belly of a massive fish. And then finally, reluctantly, he gave in and brought the message of repentance to his enemies. Now, the end of the story is weird. You remember how it ends? The story ends with Jonah sitting on a hill overlooking the city of Nineveh. It would be like being on Mount Tom overlooking the city of Chilliwack. And why is he there? Well, 
it seems evident that he's waiting for the fireworks to begin. He hoped they would not repent and that God would destroy them. He wanted front row seats for this action. Now, can you believe it? He actually is hoping against the success of his own mission. He hoped they would not repent. He hoped they would be destroyed. But they actually did repent, and God did not destroy them. And Jonah, rather than celebrating the success of his evangelistic work, as you might expect, is angry. This was the opportunity of a lifetime to see his enemy destroyed, front row seats. But instead they repent and he's angry. Pastor Rod concluded this series of messages quoting Tim Mackey, who says this, The subversive story of Jonah is about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Like, he's angry with God for loving his enemy. And then Rod took a mirror and turned it on us us, and asked us these thought-provoking questions. These are the questions that are posed to us by the book of Jonah. How do we see people who don't know God? Who, in a way, are enemies of the gospel? Who, in a way, are enemies of a way of life or of righteousness or a moral value? How do we see those people? And then Rod reminded us that all of us were enemies of God. So that our starting point needs to be to remember that every one of us here is a recipient of God's grace. And so he concluded, let your very first thought be love. So that's how Rod concluded that series on on Jonah. Let your very first thought be love. When we let our very first thought be love, we are actually following the footsteps of Jesus, who loved Jonah's enemy. Probably I should better phrase that. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who loved Jonah's enemy. And then Jesus, God the Son, said this to us. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Never forget that Jesus spoke these words to a community controlled by an occupying Roman army with a ruthless Roman governor. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, including the Romans. Pretty radical, isn't it? So why then is the book of Jonah in our Bible? The answer is this, Jonah stands as a corrective to our self-serving perspective influenced by prejudice. Jonah forces us to ask this question, 
How might our geopolitical point of view get in the way of fulfilling God's mission in the world? Or more personally, how might my pettiness, prejudice, or fear get in the way of loving my neighbor? The life and teaching of Jesus is full of examples of Jesus crossing over those barriers. The barriers are pettiness, of prejudice, of fear to reach all kinds of different people. Jesus constantly intersected with people in their own world, in the marketplace, on the road, in a private home, at a party, among the fishing boats. Jesus didn't just shine his light at church. This wasn't just something at the synagogue or the temple. Rather, he shone directly into the world where people lived, where people worked, where they traveled, where they partied. Now, a good example of this is found in Mark chapter 2. In this story, Jesus comes to a tax collector working at his tax collecting booth. Here's how the story goes. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, rather than just avert his eyes and walk on by, which most people would do, Jesus takes notice of Levi and stops and engages him in conversation. To Jesus, Levi is not part of this broad category of people who must be avoided. A broad category of people who were identified as tax collectors and sinners. Now that's how most people would view Levi. He was a tax collector and a sinner. But that's not how Jesus saw him. In, in society's opinion, Levi is best avoided because he belongs to this nasty group of people. But in Jesus' opinion, that's society's opinion, but as, as Jesus, sorry, I might have got that a little mixed up, so let me say that again. In society's opinion, um, Levi is best avoided because he belongs to this group of tax collectors and sinners, whereas for Jesus' perspective, he is a man who is loved, he is a man with spiritual needs, and he is a man with potential to serve God. Now, we don't know what went on in this conversation between Jesus and, and Levi, but the next thing you know, Jesus is inviting him to join his followers. As we read on, follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. So why would Jesus do that? I mean, everyone knows, I mean, a tax collector will not make a good disciple. Uh, there's way too much against him. Uh, first off, tax collectors are agents of the Roman occupiers. They are traitors. And, and more than that, secondly, they are traitors who are corrupt. So they are traitors who manage to line their own pockets at the expense of their own people. Yet Jesus sees in this man the potential of a disciple. And, and years later, Levi, who's also known as Matthew, authors one of the four biographies that we have of the life of Jesus that's found in our Bible. Now, as we read on, we discover that Jesus actually accepts an invitation for a meal at Levi's home. He shouldn't do this. To make things worse, Levi invites all his friends. Okay, now Jesus really enters into Levi's world. 
the world of Levi's family and his friends and his connections, a world just lousy with sinners. This is so much more intimate than the relatively safe environment on the street. He's entering into the heart of Levi's world. And this unleashes a barrage of criticism. We read on. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. That's very interesting, that statement. When the teachers of the law, who are Pharisees, saw him eating with the tax collectors and, sin- and sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, and here in this, like a critical tone, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, what, what Jesus does here is he steps over a line that must not be crossed. In the minds of the religious establishment, this is a violation. A good teacher would never do this. A good teacher would never do this. Well, you know what that means, right? Jesus is tainted by association. And don't think that Jesus doesn't know this. He's not ignorant how people think. But he steps, he takes this step into this world knowingly and purposefully. And instead of apologizing for his, in quotes, momentary lapse of judgment, we read this. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Like, what he's saying is, I'm not apologizing, because this is my mission. To fulfill this mission, that is to give this invitation to sinners, he enters right into their private world. He shines his light right into their personal lives. He goes right into their homes and eats with them. Jesus is on mission, because the mission is to save sinners. This criticism of his choice of friends is evident throughout the Gospels, but there's one example in Matthew 11, verse 19. There, Jesus' critics call him a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And you know what? I don't think this is going to hurt his feelings. I think he's going to accept this put-down as a badge of honor. There's a wonderful old hymn. It goes like like this. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul, friends may fail me, foes assail me, but he, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus is a friend for sinners who makes sinners whole. And so he's a friend for you, and he's a friend for me. It's like what Rod reminded us of in that sermon on on Jonah. All of us were once enemies of God, all of us. It's what we were reminded of by Tim this morning as we shared in the communion. All of us were once enemies of God. So our starting point must be to remember that all of us are recipients of God's grace. Thank the Lord that he is a friend for sinners. And let your very first thought be love. This propensity to hang out with sinners was a recurring theme in Jesus' life. This isn't just a one-off. 
Uh, at different times, he hung out with a Samaritan woman, a Roman centurion, a Gentile woman. One time, he let a woman with a bad reputation anoint his feet. Jesus was truly a friend of sinners. He cared more about sinners than he cared about his own reputation. He entered their private world to shine into their darkness. And you know what else is remarkable? Jesus demonstrates the extent of his love by attempting to reach his critics. He even enters into their private world. Did you know that Luke records three separate times, three times, when Jesus ate at the home of a Pharisee? He wanted to win them too, even though he, every time he entered at great personal risk. They watched him like a hawk. Just look at the last, I wish I recorded the, the chapter, the last time he eats with the Pharisees recorded in Luke's gospel. They are watching him. They are trying to catch him on a slip-up. They're collecting information that will be used against him. Yet he enters their personal world to try and win them over, shining in his light into their darkness. They too are sinners who need a savior. Like the time he agreed to a private meeting with a religious leader named Nicodemus, who then became one of his followers. One time, a man described as a rich ruler asked Jesus a question about eternal life and how to gain it. And the gospel writer captured the attitude of Jesus toward this man with this statement. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus loved those who were on the bottom rung and those on the top rung. Jesus is the friend of sinners on all of the rungs. Jesus entered the world of tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and rich rulers because he loved them. And he continues to enter the world of tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and rich rulers today. Jesus enters the world of sinners as a missionary guided by his missionary philosophy. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This serves as an example to us of how we need to be willing to cross over barriers to reach out to those who need the Lord. This really should cause us to reflect on how willing we are to cross those barriers. You know, the biggest barrier we face is the barrier that lies within us. Like, it's the barrier inside of me. That's the biggest barrier I face. Now, what I'm talking about are things like pettiness and prejudice and fear. I want to share an experience of crossing over a barrier that I witnessed many years ago in Duncan. Um, we experienced this mini-revival when I was a pastor in Duncan. It's an interesting example of us as a church stepping over a barrier. In the early 1990s, our church in Duncan had a breakthrough reaching young adults in our community. It started off with our associate pastor who worked with young adults. He got to know a young man who came to faith in Christ and was radically changed for Jesus. This guy was passionate about God and began inviting his friends. First there was a small handful, and then there were 10, and then there were 20, and then 30, and then 40, and 50 or more. 
Soon our church was filling up with these non-churched young adults full of questions. They really listened to sermons. These were among my favorite people I've ever known. They really went over my heart. You know that expression, sitting on the edge of your chair, that's what it was like. And we had amazing question, conversations with them. And they began turning to Jesus. But they really looked different. They didn't fit the normal church crowd. They were from a different subculture. For example, back in the 1990s, we used to dress up for church. Even in Duncan, where we were more informal and laid back than most churches. In fact, someone once told me that I was the first preacher he ever heard who preached without a tie and jacket. But still, people dressed up. Well, these young adults didn't. And they had piercings, which weren't that common back then, and lots of tattoos and muscle shirts, we called them, or tank tops. Lots of muscles to go with the muscle shirts, too. But no one wore muscle shirts to church back then. No one did. But they did. And they looked so different. And they all sat together in the front rows. You couldn't miss them. Now here's something interesting. Is you might actually feel a bit intimidated by them. Really. So God worked in our church. And you know, interestingly, like our church embraced them. It was so cool. Our church loved them. People in our congregation were so delighted to see them, they didn't care. Our church people welcomed them and encouraged them, and I don't remember any complaints for, from anyone about their presence, their style, or anything. You see, there wasn't pettiness, prejudice, or fear. Just a warm, loving welcome. Now, here's some things that happened, because God worked. One year, we baptized 15 young adults who came to faith. And there's so many stories of God's working. I could tell quite a few. Over, the time, over time, the fellow who started this avalanche of newcomers became a deacon on our leadership team, the very first male deacon with an earring. That actually did create a few questions. He was really cool and eager to learn. And some years later, I had him as a student at Briarcrest uh, Bible College, a course I was teaching. And he blessed our family by impacting one of our sons, with the example of his passion for God. One of the women became a youth leader and eventually came on paid staff and led our five-day-a-week preschool ministry called Morning Star Preschool. Another became a pastor at a fellowship church here in BC. We did weddings for those who were living together and wanted to get their relationship right with God. And here's something that I learned through this. One, God did it. Like, um... Jonathan Edwards, back in the 1700s, talked about a really big revival, not a mini one, in his era, which he described as a surprising work of God. And I would say, yes, it's always surprising. But second, I also learned that we need to respond by willing to cross over barriers as God is working. So God initiates, we respond, and we have to cross over barriers, which are barriers like pettiness, like making a big deal out of something that shouldn't be. And prejudice, because they're outside of our categories of the people that we like. Or fear, because they terrify us. The only way we can do this kind of thing and see God work is to be willing to step across that divide and build bridges. And to love those who are different. Now we can be like Jonah. We can refuse the call. We can 
like withdraw because of pettiness or prejudice or fear. I wonder how much fear does stand in the way of crossing over a barrier. I mean, what if I'm harmed? What if the person dislikes me or my faith? What if the person criticizes me or mocks me? What if I have to change something? Worst of all, what if our church changes with new people who are different? You know, the hurdle of fear will keep us from stepping over even relatively safe barriers. For example, reaching out to your next door neighbor or a close friend or a, a sibling or a, a great coworker. Crossing barriers is never easy. So let me say just several things that you, could be helpful. Number one is let your live your life so well that the presence of Christ is evident through your deeds. Even if you're not able to speak about your faith, let your life speak your faith. Second, prayerfully wait on God, because God often opens doors unexpectedly. Look for those spirit-led opportunities. Allow God to surprise you. And number three, preaching to people, i.e. information overload, is not helpful. Dialogue is better. Uh, you know, you don't have to say everything you know every time you have a chance. If you force feed another person, you will likely destroy friendly conversation and probably will not have another opportunity with that person again. And I think, and I, I would just caution us on this one, I think we most often make this error with family members where they feel preached at. So, remember these things. Live your life well so that your life is speaking volumes of the presence of Christ. Prayerfully wait on God to open doors, sometimes unexpectedly. Watch for the prompting and leading of the Spirit. And preaching to people is not helpful. Dialogue is better. Now, let me end with the verse where we started, and then we'll pray. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. That describes our times. It describes the times that have always been. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And may God enable us to shine in that manner. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that... You have placed us where we are with people in our lives and opportunities, but give us the courage, give us the love to be able to step over barriers that seem insurmountable. We pray that the Spirit of God would prompt us and show us those opportunities when they arise, and may we be I don't know why's in the way in which we speak about our faith to win those who need you. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being part of our service today. May God bless you as you serve him this week. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.